we ask that we would be attentive. I thank you for all those who came out tonight. And Lord, um, it, it is cold and the roads are icy. And it's, uh, we haven't had a cold day like this, um, as cold as it was this morning and throughout the day for a long, long time. And uh, Lord, I thank you that you got us through it. And Lord, I just pray for those who can't get out in this cold weather and, and when it's icy. So I thank you that we have live stream. And for those who are, are joining us on live stream, I pray that they would be blessed um, in their place of residence to be able to watch us and join us. In one heart, we come together um, tonight and we desire for you to touch our hearts, to instruct our hearts with the word of God. So, Lord, um, thank you that we're in this warm place. We open our ears to you right now, and our hearts, we want to be teachable as we go through the text here, through these verses, and, Lord, make application. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as you go through the Old Testament, you know that the first five books, called the books of Moses or the books of the law, uh, Genesis. Genesis means beginning, and we see the creation, the six-day creation recorded for us there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we see the first sin and, the, you know, the first man and, and the consequences of sin and the fallen creation, the flood account and all of that. In Genesis chapter 12, of course, then God would call a man named Abram, later on known as Abraham, out from the land of the Chaldeans and, and to come to the land that he was going to show Abraham. He made a covenant with him, made a promise that, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants are going to number the stars of heaven. And of course, Abraham came into the land of Canaan, and he had a son, Isaac. And you recall that in that Abrahamic covenant, that in chapter 12 of Genesis, God did tell Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever whoever curses you, I will curse. So with that covenant given to Abraham, it would pass through his son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob, as you read the book of Genesis, had 12 sons who were the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know at the end of the book of Genesis that Jacob and his family would come into Egypt because of circumstances that had taken place. Uh, Joseph, one of Jacob's son, ended up being the prime minister of Egypt. So because of famine in the land that was so great, uh, it was Joseph that had his family come to Egypt. And just as it was told to Abraham, they would be there for four generations, or that is for a totality of 400 years. And over time, in that 400 years, what happened is they ended up being under the bondage and slavery of Egypt. So then comes Exodus as God would raise up Moses. And Moses was called by God to go to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. They would come out after the plagues came down upon uh, Egypt. And then they came to the mountain of God. And there God would begin to establish them as a nation. He would uh, give Moses the law, uh, and he would make that covenant with the children of Israel. And the covenant was very simple. And it was, if you follow after me and worship me and obey me, then I'm going to bless you when you go into the promised land. Uh, I'm going to, to bless you with crops. I'm going to bless you with the rain. I'm going to defeat the enemy. Um, and things are going to be good because they were called Israel, which means governed by God. God wanted to govern them. And there at Mount Sinai, also the covenant included, but if you forsake me and go after other gods, 
then you're going to find yourselves, you know, going through plagues and, and, and locust infestations. He warned them that difficulties would come. They would be defeated by their enemies and, and even taken off into captivity. So the children of Israel being established by God as he made that covenant with them, and then also God was preparing them in the ceremonial laws and religious laws and the civil laws given to Moses, and we saw that the tabernacle would be built there in the uh, book of Exodus as um, a tabernacle was constructed and the furnishings and then the, uh, the sacrifices with the altar made in the outer court. And so Exodus talks about all that, the furnishings of the tabernacle and that was going to be a method in which the people could come to God and worship him the book of Leviticus as you go into Leviticus Leviticus takes um, a time span of about 30 days where the priests now that the tabernacle was completed the priests the direct descendants of Aaron were given their responsibilities and in the book of Leviticus you see how God was uh, showing them and teaching them how to worship and obey him and serve him so the responsibilities of the priests and the sacrifices um, that they would do and the sacrifices described to us and then also we know that the Levites because not every Levite was a priest. So the different families of the Levites would assist the priests in the work of the ministry. So that's the book of Leviticus. Numbers covers a time span of about 38 years in their wilderness wandering. And it records how they were disobedient to the Lord. They were unfaithful to the Lord. And of course, it's recorded how they would come back despised from the promised land. And they said the land is good. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's giants in the land, and, and there's big walls, and, and they're huge, and we're but grasshoppers in their sight. And it was Joshua and Caleb that said, so what? God has given us a promise that we're going to drive the inhabitants out. He's going to do that work, and he's given us the land. Let's go into the promised land. But the people said, no, we won't go, and we're going to die you know, in the promised land, and our children are going to die there. So the Lord said that you're going to wander in the wilderness for a totality of 40 years. And what happened was they continued to take laps for those 40 years around Mount Sinai. They continued in their rebellion and, and, and unfaithfulness to the Lord. And, and the book of Numbers records how they did that. And what happened was, was the wilderness out there in the Sinai ended up becoming the largest graveyard in human history. Well, finally, they would come up to the border of the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy, it covers a time span of one or two months where Moses, right before he dies, gives them the law again. Because remember this, it was a new generation that had to go into the promised land. They needed to hear the law once again. So Deuteronomy means second law. And it wasn't that it was a new set of laws, that he was establishing them in the law that was given to them 40 years previously. So that's the book of Moses, those first five books of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then what you begin is the section of the Old Testament that's called the historical books. It begins with Joshua, and it goes into the book of Esther, and, um, or, um, yeah, of, um, of, um, <laughs> yeah, of um, Esther, yeah. And, um, and so um, Esther we will see takes place during this time that we're talking about after the captivity. But 
the book of Joshua, we know that it was Joshua that led the children of Israel into the promised land as they crossed the Jordan River, and it was Joshua that gave them great victory. And as they drove out the Canaanites, just as the Lord said that they would, they would go in and they had victory. It was not a complete driving out of the Canaanites and the different tribes. And at the end of the book of Joshua, even though they received their allotments, they uh, had great victory, they started to turn towards the gods of the Canaanites. And you know that Joshua would say to them that you need to decide this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so Joshua, that he was such a great leader, and we go then into the book of Judges, right? In the book of Judges, we see that the people, that generation after the death of Joshua, began to turn to the gods of the Canaanites. Paul, in his address uh, there in Acts chapter 13, when he was given a testimony to the Jews there in, in recounting their history, he said that the days of the judges lasted 450 years. And it was just this cycle that they would be in. What they would do is they would... Uh, begin to follow after the gods of the Canaanites. They would find themselves in bondage, just as God said would happen there at Mount Sinai. And they would then cry out to the Lord, and God would raise up a deliverer, and they would have victory. There would be rest in the land for a short time, but then they would go right back into disobedience and false worship. So they found themselves being in bondage to the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Midianites and the Philistines, and that was a cycle that continued for 450 years. The theme of the book of Judges was they did what was right in their own eyes, and it was a dark time indeed in the history of the nation. Well, they would come to the end of the Judges, Samuel being the last of the Judges, and Samuel in 1 Samuel, uh, he uh, was a godly leader, and we know that the people put away their idol worship. They turned to the Lord, but they did come to Samuel and they said, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And it broke Samuel's heart. And the Lord said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So you are to go and anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of, of Benjamin, and uh, he was head and shoulders above everyone else. And as you travel through 1 Samuel, you know how he was, again, uh, disobedient to the Lord. And so the Lord rejected him and told Samuel, go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and you're going to anoint the new king who has a heart after me. And, of course, that was David, the shepherd boy out there in the field, the youngest of Jesse's sons. He was anointed as the king. He would not ascend to the throne right away because the rest of 1 Samuel shows us and tells us the story how Saul pursued David in the wilderness trying to kill him. Saul finally dies. He's killed on Mount Gilboa at the end of 1 Samuel. So 2 Samuel talks about the reign of David. And David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was a great warrior. He defeated his enemies all around him. He was a great administrator. And he was one that was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He truly had a heart after God. And as you go into 1 Chronicles, it really shows us, as we saw going through 1 Chronicles, how David desired to please the Lord in his life. After he had defeated 
Jerusalem, that when the Jebusites controlled that area and, and David took uh, Mount Moriah, uh, Jerusalem, he, he would then bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, to Jerusalem, to make it a central place of worship. And, and David, you know, that he desired to build a temple. And the Lord said, you're not going to build a temple, David, because you're a man of war, but your son is going to build the temple. But as we went through First Chronicles, you see what David did was he got the Levites all in order according to their divisions, uh, the gatekeepers, the uh, musicians, the, uh, all those who did all manner of service. He got them all organized according to the Spirit of God um, that we know from First Chronicles. He got the priests all divided up in their divisions. The military was divided up in their divisions. He, he got all the materials ready to go so that when he died, his son Solomon could just take the plans and everything was organized and he could build the temple. And of course, that's what happened. And Solomon, David's son, after David reigned for 40 years, Solomon comes to the throne and he built the temple. And you recall that it was in First Chronicles, that the prayer of dedication. It was such a glorious time in the nation, wasn't it? That the glory of the Lord is they dedicated that magnificent temple that was covered with gold. And, and the nation was blessed and, and there was prosperity that was of great abundance to everyone who lived in Israel. And of course, at that prayer of dedication, the glory of the Lord manifested so powerfully that the priests had to stop ministering. So Solomon, he, he was ruling during that time, but at the end of his reign, towards the end of his life, remember he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And some of those wives, foreign wives, would cause Solomon to burn incense to false gods. And so, once again, the nation is plunged into idol worship. It was Solomon that dies. His son, Rehoboam, comes on the scene. The ten northern tribes, as you know, split away from the tribe of Judah and, and, and Benjamin. So you had the nation that was split. You had the house of Israel up north, and then you had the house of Judah down south. And then traveling through First and Second Kings, and as we saw the different kings of Israel and of Judah, of course, Israel had 19 kings, and every single one of those kings were evil kings. And we know that the house of Israel, uh, they would go off into captivity by the Assyrians. Matter of fact, those two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. You recall there was the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe, half a tribe of Manasseh, that they would go off into captivity in 732 B.C. About 10 years later, the rest of the house of Israel goes off into captivity. Then we saw last week, didn't we, that Judah, Judah did a little bit better. They had 20 kings. All of those kings were compared to David, weren't they? And David, the reason that those kings were compared to David, it wasn't that David was perfect. David sinned. He, he committed murder. He, he committed adultery. But the reason that they were compared to David is because David did have a heart after God. Because David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David never bowed the knee to an idol. So here are the kings. Some of those kings were good kings as we saw in our study over the last month or so or a couple months going through Second Chronicles. And some of those kings were very evil kings, such as Manasseh. And they would eventually go off into captivity as we saw last week, didn't they? And so they would then be taken away by Babylon. As we discussed last week, that there was three waves of captivity that took place. It was after the death of Josiah. Josiah 
was the last of the good kings. He dies in 609 B.C. And his son uh, comes on the scene that J.O.A. has. He reigns for a short time. He's taken off by uh, the, the pharaoh of Egypt to Egypt. So his brother Jehoiakim comes on the scene. Jehoiakim was the evil king. He reigns for 11 years. And during his reign, what happens is, is that it was Babylon, who's become the world power, was pursuing Egypt. They had defeated Egypt and Assyria at the Battle of Sharshemes in the Upper Euphrates. And Nebuchadnezzar, the general, was chasing the Egyptians clear down into the Sinai. And all of a sudden, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar gets word that his father had died. And so he has to go back to Babylon very quickly to secure the throne. And on his way back, he stops in Jerusalem. And he takes the choice men of Judah away captive. And some of those choice men we know from the scriptures, one of them was Daniel, wasn't it? Daniel, who would go and he would be trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government. So he's in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar along with his friends, Azariah, Mishael, and, um, and, um, Azariah, Mishael, and um, the third one. So it'll come to mind in just a minute. <laughs> And I should have written it all down, but Azariah, Mishael, and somebody else. I can't remember. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So they go off into captivity. They're being used of the Lord. It's Daniel that's being used of God to, uh, you know, interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. So here is Daniel. He's off. And then what happened was Jehoiakim that we read about, he rebelled against the king. He ends up getting killed. He's thrown over the wall of Jerusalem. And we see that it was um, then Nebuchadnezzar that came in and took more people away captive. And in that second wave of captivity in 597 B.C. was Ezekiel was taken off into captivity. So he's off in Babylon. He's prophesying. And, um, and then he gives visions, as we see, some powerful visions in his book. And prophetic visions, he saw a vision of the glory of the Lord that would depart from the temple and head over to Mount of Olives because of their idol worship and because of their disobedience. We know that Jehoiakim, that um, he would be replaced by Jehoiakim, by, who only ruled for a short time, and then the last king of Judah was Zedekiah, and he would rule, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586 B.C., and this time he destroys Jerusalem. He destroys Solomon's temple, and more are taken off into captivity, and really only a few are left in the land and the poor of the land. So now as we go into Ezra, as we go into Nehemiah, and as we go into Esther, we see that these three books of the historical books are now talking about after the Babylonian captivity. So we end at 2 Chronicles chapter 36 with them going off into captivity, and now we begin Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, we read in verse 1, King of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, 
So you know that in 605 B.C., the captivity begins. It would continue to 536 B.C., 70 years. The reason for 70 years? Well, you recall that Jeremiah prophesied it would be 70 years because to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lays desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In other words, the law said that they were to rest the land every seventh year. They did not do that for 490 years. So the Lord said the land's going to get its rest, 70 years of captivity. And you see, you recall that as we were talking about when they first went off into captivity and Jehoiakim was the king, and there was those false prophets that came along and said, oh, the Babylonians are going to fall, and they're going to be our young men back in just a couple years. We don't need to worry about anything. You know, we're God's people, and, and we're God's holy city here in Jerusalem, and we have the temple. We're not going to be judged. And Jeremiah was coming along and saying, no, that you're going to be there for a while. And he would write a letter, as he was told by God, to the captives, listen, you're going to be there for a while. So stay in the land, live peaceably, have children, and plant gardens, because you're going to be there for a total of 70 years. During that time, Daniel there is, he's prophesying in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar that he's there. And remember in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He calls for his wise men and he calls for the soothsayers and, and, and he calls for the musicians and he says, listen, I need somebody to tell me what the dream is and the interpretation of the dream. And they couldn't do that. So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, I will tell you the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And so God gave Daniel the dream that he had. And what Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of was this, this image of this man that was made of different metals. And then Daniel would interpret that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, the image that you saw of a man that had a head of gold, it had a chest and arms of silver, it had bellies of uh, and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then it had feet with ten toes. And those ten toes and feet were made of iron mingled with clay. So Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. That's you. But your kingdom's going to be replaced by another, and that is the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. So that's what took place in 536 B.C. You know that even Isaiah in chapter 44, verse 28, to chapter 45, verse 6, for you note-takers, that Isaiah, 170 years before this decree comes out that we're just going to read about, that Isaiah would name Cyrus by name to be God's servant that was going to be used to overthrow Babylon and to bring the children of Israel or the children of Judah back to Jerusalem so they can rebuild their temple. So that's what happens. Daniel chapter 5 records that event. Belshazzar's having a big party, and he's toasting to the false gods uh, of the Babylonians. And, and as he's there with a thousand of his lords and, and governmental officials, all of a sudden a hand writes on the wall behind him. And Daniel comes out and he interprets the handwriting on the wall. And the interpretation was that the kingdom of the Babylonians, your kingdom, is over. You've been found wanting in, 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 the, in, in the balances. And Belshazzar 
that your kingdom is going to come crashing down tonight and you're going to be killed. And that's exactly what happened. You see, while Belshazzar was inside the city walls of Babylon having this party, it was Cyrus on the outside of the walls that was diverting the flow of the Euphrates River. He walked underneath the walls, came into the city of Babylon, took it over. So now, instead of the Babylonians being the world power, it's the Medo-Persian Empire as we start the book of Ezra. Cyrus is the king, and in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he gives word... The 70 years are over, captivity, and now they're going to come back to Jerusalem here. And we know as they come back to Jerusalem that there's going to be three waves of return. Just as there was three waves of captivity, there's now three waves of return. Ezra chapters 1 through 6, we're going to see the first return to Jerusalem in 536 B.C., where they're led by a man named Zerubbabel, who would be the civil leader, and then Joshua, who is the spiritual leader. And just under 50,000 people are going to come back and make this long 500-mile journey from, from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Remember that Jerusalem laid in rubble at this time. Now, you might think that's a lot of people, 50,000, but really it was a small number. Before the captivity, as, as they were in Israel during the time of the first temple and even during the times of the judges when the tabernacle was still there, the people worked the land. They had vineyards, they had orchards, they had cattle, they had sheep. And that's, you know, they were agriculturally based and, and that's how people made a living. When they went off into captivity, all that was gone. So Jeremiah is saying, plant yourself in the land, you know, and live there peaceably. And so what happened is, is the Jews, many of them, became, you know, businessmen and, and shopkeepers, and they were very good at it. So most of them stayed back in Persia and in Babylon. They stayed there. They had planted themselves there. So really only a small number comes back with Zerubbabel and Joshua, and that's the first return. Now, in chapters 7 through 10, we will see the second return under the leadership of Ezra. Ezra was a priest and a scribe, and he comes back with a very small number, only about 2,000, about 80 years after the first return here. And Ezra is going to focus on the spiritual restoration of the people, calling them into a right relationship with God. So after the book of Ezra, we will then go into the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah leads the third return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the streets as the command comes out from Artaxerxes in the book of Nehemiah. So that's what we're seeing. This is after the Babylonian captivity. And it's important for us to understand this historical perspective because, guys, when you go to the books of the prophet. When you go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, as you look at the minor prophets, it's important to know what day they were prophesying, when they were prophesying, and you can understand the historical context of why they were saying why they were saying and the manner in which they are saying it and the situation that was taking place. Were they ministering to the house of Israel or to the house of Judah? Was it after the captivity or before the captivity? And as you just kind of kind of put it all together, the Old Testament is going to make a whole lot more sense to you. So here is, the, after the Babylonian captivity, you have the books of Ezra, you have the books of Nehemiah and Esther. 
Esther is going to be taking place during that time that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And so the first thing that they're going to do is they come back. We read this decree that they're going to rebuild the temple. And also during that time, there's some prophets that are ministering that we're going to talk about. And one of them is Zechariah. Another one's Haggai. And then Malachi. Those guys are on the scene. So let's look at this decree that Cyrus made in verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build a house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem." So what we're going to see here is the theme of and the focus of Esther is the word of the Lord. That's going to be mentioned seven times here in this book. But this decree comes out that they should return to Jerusalem now. The 70 years of captivity are over. God puts it on Cyrus' heart to, to make this decree. And when you go back, the first order of business is you're going to rebuild the house of the Lord. But I want us to, to draw attention to verse 4 here. And what Cyrus says is, if you don't go, and most of them would stay back where they were, but if you don't go back to Jerusalem, then you have a responsibility to help those who do go. It does remind me, as, as we talked about, when the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering came up to the border of the promised land. And what happened there is they defeated the Ammonites and, and those on the east side of the Jordan River. And it was the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh that came to Moses and said, we like it here. The grass is, is tall and green. Um, it's good for our cattle. We want to stay on this side of the Jordan River. And at first, Moses was upset about that. But then the Lord said, Moses, it's okay. They can have that as an inheritance, but this is what they're to do. The men, since they're here securely, you defeated the enemy over here. What the men of those two and a half tribes are to do is to go with the other tribes as they cross the Jordan River and do battle with them, join in battle, help their brothers defeat the Canaanites so they can get their inheritance. So they're not just to stay here on the other side of the Jordan River and do nothing, but they're to join in and help their brethren in that. You see, as we look at that, as we see that Cyrus says, those of you who are going to stay behind, you need to give and you need to support those who are going to go back. Help those out who go. And we can make application here tonight because you may not be able to go to the mission field. You may not be able to do, you know, certain ministry, but certainly you can show support. You can support those who are doing the work of the ministry. We have some young people that are praying about going to Ukraine this summer. And, and as they're praying about it, you know, and, and the Lord is leading them to do that, you know, we have opportunity to support them in the work that they're going to do for those three weeks. And we're looking at the high schoolers doing a mission trip, going to another Calvary Chapel and helping with Vacation Bible School. And it's an opportunity for us to support them. So we may not be able to directly go to the mission field or do the work of the ministry, but we can help 
as we pray and show support there, give words of encouragement and financial support for those who are doing the work of the ministry. And that's what Cyrus was saying. As we continue in verse 5, then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God has moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around with them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. So remember that as they're coming back to Jerusalem, this is not easy for them to do that. The city is destroyed. It laid in rubble. They have no homes. They have no protection. The enemies of the Jews are going to threaten them. They're journeying through the desert, 500 miles of desert, and it was dangerous travel. So here they receive gold and silver um, to a smaller degree than another exodus in the book of Exodus. You recall when the children of Israel all came out of Egypt, that they received the spoils and, and, and they took the spoils. But here they're giving encouragement and support to them as we talked about because they knew that they needed to be supported. You see, when we do give, whether you're giving your prayers to those who are doing the work of the ministry, giving words of encouragement, or you're financially supporting, it's encouraging. And I know that I'm very much encouraged by you who give to this ministry, knowing that you pray for me, and you pray for my family, you pray for the leadership here. That means everything to me knowing that you want to give a word of encouragement. You know, you guys coming out tonight, it's a blessing to me. Because I'm thinking, well, 26 below zero this morning. It didn't get above zero today. I don't think many people or much anybody's going to come out tonight. And you guys came out tonight, and it shows me that you want to be here. And, and you're doing a Bible study in the Old Testament. And it blesses me and it encourages me. When you give to the ministry so we can continue to do the work of the ministry, continue to, to be on the radio, Grace FM, uh, to support that, to, to support those of us who are on staff, it's a tremendous encouragement and blessing to me. And as Paul would write to the Philippian believers, the fruit that comes from my ministry, Paul would say, is going to be accounted to your eternal account. The fruit that comes from this ministry as you pray and as you give, as you support, it's going to be given to you in eternal account, rewards. And the Lord sees it and he's going to bless you in eternity. So here, a very important principle that we see in the scriptures here in truth. In verse 7, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put it in temples of his God. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Meredath, the treasurer, and counted them out, and Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. Sheshbazzar, some have suggested that this is a partner with Zerubbabel, but most scholars believe it was just a Babylonian name given to Zerubbabel. Again, we know that Daniel, he was given a Babylonian name. Belteshazzar um, is uh, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. That's the third one. They, they were given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as we read the book of Daniel, right? So this is probably just a Babylonian name that is given here to Zerubbabel as he is the prince of Judah or the governor of Judah at this time. 
Verse 9, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shes Bazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar, when he in 605 B.C. and then later on in 597 B.C., took the articles out of Solomon's temple, took them to his pagan temple in Babylon. Those articles are now brought back with the captives as they're going to rebuild the temple. And in chapter 2, now these are the people from the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. And those who came with Zerubbabel were uh, Jeshua, Nehemiah, and the names that are there. Now as we go into chapter 2, what we see here is a list of those returning from exile to Jerusalem. And the names are listed by families. Now, we're not going to read all these names. So you can read that on your own. You know, um, good bedtime reading right now. So <laughs> go through these names and you can read that. We're just going to do a quick survey of it uh, before we uh, have communion. But I do want to say this. As they are listed in families, listen. Your family is very important to the Lord. And the Lord wants to work in your family. And the Lord wants to save your family. We all have family members and those that we love that don't know the Lord or perhaps are really struggling in the things of the Lord. And I want to encourage you tonight that the Lord sees you and your children. He knows your love for them and your heartache for them and other family members, whether it's parents or children, grandchildren, whoever it might be. And know this, that the God wants to work in your family. And he knows their names. And you keep praying for them. And you keep ministering to them. And entrust them to the Lord. Because he loves them very much. And you keep interceding on behalf of them given truth to them. Some of you, maybe you're strained from family members, but you can pray for them, certainly. And God, he sees our families and desires to save our families, to work in the lives of our family. Zerubbabel, again, was appointed the governor over the province of Judah. He was also a descendant of the last reigning Judean king. Um, Jeshua, uh, Zechariah mentions him in his book, in the book of Zechariah, again, Zechariah, one of the prophets that is on the scene during this time. And then as you look at this list in verses 3 through 20, again, we're not going to read all these names. What you have is the list of various families and the number of people they brought back with them to Jerusalem. Then as you go into verses 21 through 35, what you have is there a list of various cities that the people of each family were returned to right outside of Jerusalem. So it wasn't just Jerusalem itself. Uh, most of the people were there, but they came back to Bethlehem. They came back to some of those other cities that were right outside of Jerusalem. And so you have a list of various cities that the people in each family returned to, as I mentioned. Verses 36 through 39 is the list of priests that returned, which was over 4,000 priests. Now, I find that interesting because that's a large number. Of the 50,000, 4,000 of them 
were priests, and that was good because they were the ones that were the teachers of the law of God. And we're going to see that they're going to be set in their divisions as well as the Levites and the priests that are ones that are going to do the work as they do the sacrifices and the work in the temple that's going to be rebuilt. So they're also the teachers of the law of God. So they have a huge and, and very important responsibilities to these families that are coming back. And I just want to again encourage you men who are priests in your families, that we have a huge and very important responsibility to our families to be leading them spiritually, to be teaching our families the word of the Lord, to be an example of them, of godliness, of someone who loves the Lord, of someone who is humble before the Lord. And that's what I hope that we as men are encouraged on Saturday. And that's why I ask for all of you, whether you're coming or not, and for you wives and for you ladies, be praying for the men that come. That truly that we can be blessed and encouraged because I believe one of the great, great needs in the church today is that men that will stand up and they will lead. Whatever your circumstances are, that they will lead in their families and, and say, Lord, I need your help in, in leading and ministering to my kids and teaching them the word of the Lord. And I want to be a living sacrifice unto you, Lord. The great need is men that will stand up and be men. And that's one of the things that we're going to see with Nehemiah. Nehemiah loved this book. When he comes back, as we will get into the book of Nehemiah in just a few weeks. And Nehemiah was one that he stationed the, the men in front of their families to rebuild the wall with a trial in one hand and a sword in the other, doing the work of the Lord and the word of the Lord in their hand, to, as Paul says that the sword is the word of God. And Nehemiah would say, guys, remember this, that the Lord is great and he is awesome, and you fight for your wives, and you fight for your children, and you fight for your brethren. And guys, that's what God is calling us to do. To really fight the good fight of the Spirit. And not to be passive and pass it on to somebody else. Or think it's not a priority. But for us to really be the priests in our homes. So a list of the priests in verses 36 through 39. And then the Levites in verses 40 through 42. They helped and assisted the priests in the work of the ministry. And, and we talked a lot about the Levites, particularly in First Chronicles, as the divisions of the Levites to do all manner of work. And the Levites, what they did during the temple, you know, first and second temple reign, is they rolled up their sleeves, they helped out practically, and I think that the Levites remind me so much of what is described to us as the deacons in the New Testament. The deacon, that word deaconess in the Greek, just simply means a servant. And they are the ones that serve tables, right? We know that there's an office of deacon, and there's the qualifications of a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that is described to us. But I really believe that the Lord desires for all of us to be servants. You know, there's a saying among pastors, I've heard it many times, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in a church. I don't think it's true for here. Because many of you, you roll up your sleeves and you help out. 
in very wonderful ways and very practical ways, doing all manner of service. I know that there are some of you that you minister outside these four walls of Calvary Chapel and you minister in the community. And it blesses me when I hear the testimonies when somebody says, oh, so-and-so goes to your church. They've been such a blessing to our ministry or they've been a blessing to me. And I know you're doing that work and I don't know all the stories. But I pray that we would roll up our sleeves and, and do what it is that we can do and what the Lord will show us that we can do and supporting and encouraging and blessing and being a light to others. So here are the Levites, they're helping, and sh- there's a small number of them, the singers, the gatekeepers, and, and those who did the work of, of the ministry. In verses 43 through 54, the list of the Nethium. Now you think, who's the Nethiums? Well, they were the descendants of the Gibeonites. And if you want to know about the Gibeonites and how they got involved with the work and, and with the Jews, is you go back to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua is beginning to take over the land. The Gibeonites are thinking, oh, these guys are going to destroy us. We need to fool them. So what they did is they put on some old, you know, um, ratty clothes and, and shoes that were worn out and bread that was molded and said, Joshua, we came from a far land. Will you make a covenant with us not to destroy us? And Joshua said, sure, we will do that. And then Joshua found out uh, they live right here. They're part of the Canaanite tribes that we're supposed to drive out and destroy. But Joshua had already made a covenant with them. So what happened was is that they ended up in that covenant uh, because of it. The Gibeonites over time ended up serving the Jews there at the tabernacle and in the temple. They would cut wood. They would do all kinds of things. So here's a list of them um, that have come back as well. And then in verses 55 through 58, the servants of Solomon's, their children and their descendants. And then in verses 59 through 63, those among the priests with uncertain genealogies, as so they were excluded from the priesthood. They would seek God um, the Urim and the Thummim is mentioned here. Urim and Thummim, uh, which means light and perfection. You see, genealogy was very important. You had to trace your genealogy back to Aaron, or you couldn't serve in the priesthood. So there is some uncertainty here. So they were looking at the Urim and the Thummim, and somehow they used that for them to, to seek God's will. Um, and you see it throughout the New Testament. We're not sure what the Urim and the Thummim was. We do know what it was not. It was not these looking glasses that Joseph Smith used to translate, you know, reform Egyptian hydroglyphic on golden plates into the Book of Mormon. The Urim and the Thummim, we don't see in the New Testament at all. We only see it in, uh, or in the New Testament, but only in the Old Testament. And they believe that it was maybe two stones um, in the breastplate of the high priest. So we have something better, don't we? We have the Holy Spirit. And we have the Word of God to direct us and guide us in everything. And then in verses 64 through the end of the chapter, what you see here is the summary of the returning exile. Verse 68, some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury the work. I think that's a key in giving. You see, a key we see in Scripture is given willingly, given freely, given cheerfully, and according to your ability. And so 61,000 gold dacrums and 
uh, dacmas and 61,000 uh, or 5,000 minus of silver and 100 priestly garments. Verse 70, so the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers and the Nethinims dwelt in the cities and all Israel in their cities. So a total, as you go through the chapter here, if you were to count it all up, would be 49,897 people in all that come back from Babylon to build the house of the Lord. And we'll begin to see that next time. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in the study of your word. And, Lord, a lot of history here, a lot of things, but we want to put it together so we can understand our text better and understand that you are a God of mercy and grace, that, Lord, that you didn't forget about your people when they went off into captivity, but having mercy and having grace on them, that you brought them back into the land and you're going to do a new work. A new temple is going to be built. And Lord, that you're going to continue to show yourself strong on behalf of your people. You knew all those who came back. And Lord, those who supported those who came back. And Father, you see us as well. And Lord, as we have come to you, we know that a new beginning... Lord, a new creation has begun when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And tonight as we come to the communion table once again, we come taking the elements, going back, and just marveling at this new covenant 